Welcome to Sexology, a podcast that untangles the science of sex and pleasure. And now, with this week's episode, your host, clinical psychologist, Dr. Nazanin Moali. Hello there. Welcome to another episode of Sexology Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Nazanin Moali. I'm recording this episode at the first day of summer. Super excited for this new season. I was born during summer and I love summer activities, specifically two things that I do during summer, if if you know me, is doing lots of biking by the beach and reading on the beach. And specifically, I love erotica, reading erotica, romance novels on the beach. I'm kind of low on, on the books that I, that I have on my list. So if you are reading this different erotica that you love, I appreciate if you send me the information. You can send it to my social media and tag me at Oasis2Care, or you can email me, drmoali at sexologypodcast.com. Can't wait to hear what you're reading. Today, we're going to talk about BDSM. We had various episodes around power play, BDSM. We had Midori in the show talking to about BDSM. But this episode, we're going to talk about what and how to navigate if your partner is into BDSM and uh, you identify as vanilla or other way around. Few weeks ago, I came across this journal article and sexuality and culture journal. And the title was Vanilla and Kink Power and Communication Marriages with a BDSM Identifying Partner, which uh, one of the authors was Dr. Kat Meyer. And I thought this is fantastic because this is an issue that I see and I guess a struggle that I see in my practice that. Sometimes people coming in because one partner is identifying as uh, having kinky desires or they identify as someone who who is into BDSM and the other partner doesn't like it. They kind of think they're vanilla. They don't want to try things and they come into therapy to kind of see how to navigate that. And I didn't know that there was research studies on that. That's why I thought, oh, my God, I got to have Dr. Kadmeyer in our show. So this is the topic we're going to explore today. Dr. Kadmeyer is a licensed couple therapist, sex therapist, yoga instructor, published researcher, and Reiki practitioner dedicated to evolving the relationship we have surrounding sexualities and our bodies. I leave a link to her private practice in the website. She also is a co-creator of Goddess Celebration, an annual large-scale Women's Day related held in Malibu, California. Very cool that she's also has her own podcast. I didn't know about that, which we have so many things in common, which is called Eat, Play, Sex. I leave a link in the show notes to, the, to her podcast as well. And without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Kat Meyer. Hello and welcome to another episode of Sexology Podcast. I am so excited to have a, a therapist and also a researcher, Dr. Kat Meyer in our show. Dr. Kat, welcome to our show. Hi, my pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> I am so excited to have you on the show because I feel like we 
we didn't have enough episode on BDSM. And that's one of those topics that I get uh, lots of questions around. We had Midori talked about it last year, but I know that you published on this topic. This is something that you're very familiar with. So this is definitely an exciting topic to talk about. I'm excited for it. Uh, so tell me, you know, when it comes to BDSM, at times there are some misconceptions. People, they don't know what, what does a BDSM relationship look like? What are some of the things that people do in their relationship? Mm-hmm. So can you tell us more about that? Sure. And that's such a loaded question, first of all. <laughs> like a two-year conversation. Yeah. No, I love it. It's great. I'm ready to dive in. <laughs> but, so BDSM uh, stands for Bondage, Discipline, or Dominance Sadomasochism. And it's a, you know, it can, it's really up to the people. It can be a lifestyle meaning that it's something that they do in the home or it's something that they, the way that they live their lives in a way of incorporating, whether it's kink or whether it's power play or sensation play, but then it can also be something that you do in in what we call the scene or the community where you play outside with other people and play with them as in engaging in in these um, sexual or power dynamics, or it's just being a part of the community. So I would say it's, it's a vast range of expression. And as you said, it's, it can be a lifestyle like 24 seven, or it could be a part of people's kind of like sexual play. Right, right. So some people identify it as this is who I am. This is my uh, sexual identity. Or some people identify it as this is something that I do. This is something that I engage in. This is how I see more of my erotic map, so to say. This is what gets me off. (laughs) <laughs> that, that makes sense. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so again, it really is up to the individual or up to the couple how they want that particular identity to manifest itself and up for them to decide what are our rules around this? How do we want this to look? How much time do we want to engage in this? Do we want to invite, you know, include other people? Do we want this to not be sexual and just be, you know, playing out these roles of these characters that we take on or these power differentials that we take on. And then I love that again, you're talking about the range. I was at ASAC conference and I know the presenter, one of the presenter was talking about how it is kind of power play and kind of like power dynamics part of every relationship, right? So with your spouse, with kind of your lover, there are always mm-hmm. some elements of power play. So it, it seems like in some of these individuals who are kind of like practicing kinky behavior or BDSM or in the BDSM relationship or as their orientation, it's, it's amplified. Is that accurate? Yeah, I would say it's more of like a clearly communicated and brought to the forefront. So every it's intentional, right? We're, we're, if we already have power differentials in our relationships that we're not even aware of, how the power of influence of one of our partners over the other, depending on our life circumstances or, or um, where we're at on, on some sort of social hierarchy or how much money we make, you know, all of these things influence the power that we bring into the relationship. And here in BDSM, we're saying, okay, we're intentionally setting this up. You intentionally have more power, so to say, than I do. Now, what's interesting is that there, (laughs) 
even though we're setting that intention that there's more power with, you know, sometimes we look at somebody as a master would have more power over somebody who's a submissive or a slave. But what we also see is that the person who's a submissive has just as much power, if not more, in, that, in the negotiation because they're able to say how far we actually go or they're the ones that designate, okay, this is too much or, the, or keep going kind of thing. So it's very communicated mm-hmm. and there's a constant interaction with that element of power. Absolutely. And it's not taboo. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think the point that I was trying to make with saying that it's part of every relationship is sometimes we have like human being have this kind of stigma when it comes to things that are not part of our intentional practice. We're thinking about, oh my God, what's wrong with these people that they're doing this? But we don't know that that's, that's something that we do, maybe unintentionally, unconsciously, or we enjoy. Sometimes what I, what I notice is that people have this aversion toward uh-huh. other people's kind of what they found like erotic and their te- mm-hmm. erotic template. And it can be helpful if they see that, oh, well, I, there is an element of what they do that I already like. Or I practice. Maybe mm -hmm. I'm not necessarily kind of doing a 24-7 BDSM, but I might like blindfold or I Mm -hmm. might like a spanking is something that I do with my partner. I might identify as as someone who does vanilla sex, but Mm -hmm. we we kind of adopted these things that are part, could be part of the kink culture. Does that make sense? Oh my God, so much. And you just brought up such a beautiful example there because um, we all, so many of us, I mean, we're influenced by the socially constructed idea of what sex is. And we don't understand that we again, it's so vast and it changes and our sexual potential is infinite if we allow it to be so. Mm-hmm. But if we keep seeing, you know, what is, is given to us in the media or books or what is, you know, quote unquote normal and healthy and we look at BDSM or we look at some of these other styles of sexuality or lifestyle and compare it to that, then of course it's going to be like, oh, well, that's not okay. This is okay. That's not okay. But what's interesting is that we can get sexually stimulated or turned on by some of these elements that we've deemed, quote unquote, unhealthy or fit in in the BDSM world. Like you said, the blindfolds or being taken or like how many times I've seen in books where the, the concept of being ravished or taken or, you know, bond, bonded or, um, you know, some of us like to like our booty slapped. And, <laughs> right. and, and yet some of these elements are, are in BDSM. So I think it's this mental construct of like we're separating and we can't, we have trouble with the integration of the two. Well, how can I be turned on by this, but it's wrong? So I shouldn't be turned on by this. And that creates a lot of shame and other and separateness. And judgment toward yourself and others. So I I can talk about this forever, but I want to make sure we can talk about other things BDSM related because I I get tons of questions from our listeners. Mm -hmm. So if if there are like new lovers, that Mm -hmm. one of the lovers, they, they, they know that like they are into BDSM and they are kind of like, they want to disclose it to the partner. Yeah. So when is a good time to talk about it if you are into BDSM? As soon as you can. 
As soon as you understand that that's something that you're even curious about, or if this is something that you have explored before, you know, can, letting your partner know and coming at it from a place of this isn't actually a big deal. This is simply me revealing myself so that they have the opportunity to co-create a sexual script with me mm-hmm. or decide that this isn't for them and they can move on and, I can, and we can both continue to create the exact sex and love life that we want. The, the more that we don't disclose that, then we're being inauthentic and we're not able to fully relax into who we are. And then we can end up holding resentment towards the other person. Well, why aren't you allowing me to be authentic? I'm, I'm holding this against you. Right? So the sooner in a relationship we can talk about this and bring it forth, then the sooner we can, we can bring both of our sex scripts that are different <laughs> mm-hmm. in together to formulate. And that's one thing I think people forget is that we all have our own individual sexual scripts or erotic blueprints or maps, so to say. And they aren't necessarily the same same when we come into a relationship. So we either naturally co-create something together or we, we hit up against these walls and we have to discover what is my script and what is yours so that we can layer elements of what we like together so we can get both of our needs met instead of me putting aside my, my eroticism for the sake of yours because I guarantee you we will have resentment around that. I see a lot of that in therapy sessions that I do, and I bet you do too, that people are thinking they're feeling shameful, shame around their sexuality and things they want, or they, they don't feel it's okay to talk about their desires and their needs and years pass by. And that kind of caused some resentment and frustration impacting the relationship. So I love that you're talking about as soon as people kind of feel comfortable to kind of talk about it with their partner, that that would be a good time to talk about it. And I think other thing that you mentioned that was very helpful was to kind of not make a big deal about it, kind of talking more about what you like and kind of exploring what, what the partner thinks. Do you usually recommend people kind of say the kind of the entire scope of what, I, what this is, what I like, or kind of like talk about it in a kind of small doses or kind of specific ways? Well, I would say treat it as something that is a fun exploration. You know, if you create the mindset of curiosity and fun exploration, then the dialogue is going to be that as well. So we can bring forth these, this is, I'm so curious about what your erotic map looks like. One of the things that really gets me riled up is, is this, this, and this. What is that for you? What kind of things really turn you on or make your, make you feel really juicy? And and have this be a continual dialogue. It doesn't have to be that we, we, that we put everything out onto the table all at once, mm-hmm. right? Why are we in such a rush there? But to open the conversation early on and allow that to be a, um, you know, draw it out and enjoy the unfolding. 
Right. And I love the term co-creating because our sexual experiences can be different with different partners because yeah. you are creating this experience, which might be different than what you had with previous partners because every person come in with their erotic blueprint. And this is the, this is hopefully a shared experience that they are creating together. So mm-hmm. I know that you did w- this wonderful study. It was very impressive because I never hear about studies on <laughs> sex and sexuality. So tell us, based on your study, how couples communicate and negotiate the rules and ex- expectation about their sexual relationship uh, when one partner is not necessarily into the BDSM culture. Yeah, there were there were multiple ways. So one of the things that I saw across the board is all of my the couples that I studied had done some sort of therapy first and foremost. And if we can, whether that was individual therapy or whether it was couples therapy, but allowing somebody, a third party to hold a container for us to be vulnerable and say these things that are on our mind, trusting that some, that a professional can help navigate and, um, and uh, translate for us can be really, really helpful because these, these conversations can be scary. We're, we're putting out something that is, about who we are and we're not sure how it's going to land and we're not sure how it's going to, even if our partner loves us, it may activate something inside of them. You know, it may trigger their stress response or surpass their threshold of emotional Mm -hmm. tolerance. And that doesn't mean that they, that they don't like us or that they are rejecting us, but they don't know they get dysregulated and they don't know how to hold us in that. So therapy, number one, (laughs) (laughs) Amen to that. <laughs> Amen to that. <laughs> yeah. Um, also, the the partners of the uh, the non-identifying partners were able to see that this is part of something that fulfilled them, that made them feel whole, that made them feel allowed them to be who they are, and they understood that they can't be the all encapsulating source of their fulfillment meaning that there are some things that we're not going to be able to meet in the other person. There's going to be a lot that we can, but to place the responsibility for us to do all of their needs is unfair on us and unfair for them. So in that regards, they also, there was also a lot of communication. Some of the couples set up weekly check-ins and I call this <laughs> state of the union addresses. <laughs> <laughs> we get to come together and have a, have a statement about our union, what's working, what's not working. Uh, some of the couples, all of them actually, did some sort of research. So the person who was identifying with, with the BDSM would bring books or would do a lot of research online and bring that forth to the person who wasn't identifying and involving them, including them. In most of the couples, the non-BDSM identifying person would also do their own research, uh, but that wasn't the case across the board. But there was at least this level of, of, let me help you understand what's going on inside of me so that you're not stuck with just the stories that, that your mind is creating here mm-hmm. using, you know, past understandings or misunderstandings from, again, the socially constructed idea of what BDSM means and what sex means. So that was really powerful and created a, a, a shared experience. And then also, I repeatedly saw the couples in going to events together to check things out. 
So if somebody wanted to be more in the scene, and not all of the couples wanted to, but sometimes they wanted to be in the scene, they would have their partner go with them and explore, view other people, experience what it's like to be in that space, to be in the palpable energy, and to get to know some of the other people who were there so that it was less threatening. And they could really feel that and, and he, see that these that people who are in the scene aren't necessarily deranged or, or something wrong with them mentally ill, that, that they're awesome people and the communication within the, with the community is really powerful. Um, I also saw a lot of, um, this was interesting, uh, one element that, that couples wish that they had was more support. As they navigated through this, some people felt isolated because they didn't feel that they could go to their friends or go to their family, their typical support system to be able to talk about the feelings that were coming up. Mm-hmm. So um, having, you know, whether it was, I, I remember one couple, the non-identifying partner found a support group for that, which is amazing. She was in an urban setting, so that was possible, but even finding support online. So whether it's finding an online chat or maybe you make friends with somebody who is in the scene, going to munches, which is a non-fetish wear, (laughs) I guess regular regular clothes wear (laughs) event where you can go and you can ask questions and you can get to know people in the scene without having the intimidating images or, you know, toys or dungeon activities going on around you. But you can uh, sort of relax into that um, is another really powerful experience that I saw. And then finally, some of these couples, some of them had an o- developed an open relationship. Mm-hmm. Some of them maintained a uh, monogamous relationship. Um, some of them, the identifying partner would go forth and engage in scenes or play with other people, but not sex. So that was every couple made up their own rules. They, they negotiated and came to their own shared rules and understandings of how they wanted to navigate this. And that was just one of them. Well, I love these points and so many great tips and findings that you shared with us based on your study. I guess I had a couple of questions about these couples that you studied. Were they kind of end up being in 24-7 kind of dynamic or you mentioned some of them are kind of opened up their marriage. So what was the kind of the, the end result that you found that like these couples in your study navigated this, this difference that they had in the kind of erotic template? Yeah, and it was different for everybody. Everybody's relationship manifested differently. So there was um, some couples where they were still working through it, um, where they would try, they would play some together in the bedroom, and but they, it wasn't. They weren't at the point where uh, they wanted the partner to do that outside. The but it still wasn't their preferred. You know, the non-identifying BDSM person. It wasn't still wasn't their preferred way of having sex. But it was um, they some of the elements they they were okay with, and it was more of like, okay, well, we both. And this actually was across the board. Everybody, each of the partners enjoyed vanilla regular sex mm. with their partner. So that was solid. That was good. It was more of the identifying partner wanted, you know, more of what was fulfilling for them and their identity. And so some of them, again, had 
more of like a poly situation where they had um, whole relationships outside that fulfilled the BDSM portion of who they were. Um, some people had where it was just, okay, the identifying partner would go forth and um, have, you know, do scenes with people, mm-hmm. but would never have sex with them and would never engage sexually with them. So there was a lot of trust there. And it was like, okay, and then you come back and you're with me and everything's great. This is just a part of you that you feel you want to go have fulfilled. Yeah. So it was, it was really a process for each of them to come to a conclusion. A lot of trying things out, a lot of things not working, a lot of things working, a lot of things working over time. (laughs) And um, again, it was them keep coming back, seeing what works, renegotiating what didn't work, and trusting each other. Right. And I love that you mentioned that there were different ways that people na- uh, navigated this differences. It seemed like some people were kind of like curious and they found it exciting that they incorporated. And some people, after trying, they figure out it's not for them. And perhaps they, they thought about different ways that the partner can get that kind of sexual desire fulfilled with open marriage or open relationship or polyamory. Because sometimes what I see in my practice that couples are coming in, they want to kind of incorporate like BDSM or kinky behavior and the, the other partner who is not identifying with, the, uh, with those things coming in just because of fear of abandonment. Mm-hmm. They, they say we want to do the work, but there's just like huge resentment there. I'm kind of curious if, if you see that at times. You know, I think the way that I frame things, not as much um, because I talk to people about learning what their erotic language is and teaching it in a way of, we just don't know yet what our partner's language is until we start exploring these things. And so, as I describe to them, as we get to know the types of words that turn our partner on, the types of actions or roles that we can all take on, and I explain to them, you know, some of us are more sensual. So we like Mm -hmm. um, contouring types of touch where we're really turned on by cuddles or (laughs) or by, you know, sensory connections in the environment. Some of us are more sexual. So we're more focused on the orgasms and and we're turned on by more of this rougher type of engagement. And some of us are are more of these energetic, tantric (laughs) style of people. And so we like things that more of like hovering or we like more like flowery, energetic words like um, yoni or lingam and that kind of thing. And so when when we approach it in a way of these maps that are intricate and combine all these different elements, then we can understand, okay, let's incorporate some of this and layer it with that. So both of our needs are met. This may not be... And it's a and it's a give and it's a take, right? But it's not completely throwing out our own identity for the sake of the other. And I think so often we get stuck in this black or white thinking. It has to be this or this, and there can't be both. But I see all the time, you know, where we incorporate the element of power play while we have a sensual touch. Mm-hmm. Or we incorporate, um, you know, some of these, whether it's a, maybe it's a crop toy mm-hmm. with teasing and hovering of the crop toy mm-hmm. with light touches. So it's like, how can we play with this? 
And I'm used, specifically using that word play because play allows for experimentation. It's like trying things out. And if it's not okay, if it doesn't work out, it's okay. It's nothing personal against me or them. And I think that's, that's why, as you mentioned, coming to therapy is important because mm-hmm. sometimes we are, we are kind of like so emotionally attached to different things and we don't know how to communicate these things to our partner because they're emotionally loaded. But yeah. if there is a therapist that can translate these things and different interests and kind of exciting thing that you can incorporate in a way that you describe it versus saying that kind of, I, this is what I like, take it or uh, leave it kind of situation. <laughs> Uh, if there's a therapist that can help you navigate this and effectively mm-hmm. communicate exactly what is it about this this thing that you like, how can I incorporate that? That can be a more constructive conversation. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a, how can we find more compassion for each other mm-hmm. instead of just the separation and, and the fear aspect of it? So I'm going to ask you more kind of specific questions when it comes to BDSM. So mm-hmm. tell us, how does people, how do they usually negotiate seeing? And for people that are not aware of what's aftercare, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. Um, so negotiating the scene, I, I would say, you know, learning about what it is that you're curious about. You yourself, so a lot of self-inquiry. What is it that I personally want or am curious or want to try? And that's where we can bring forth this into a conversation, right? By knowing self first. And so we can offer some of these ideas of things that we want to try. And then the other person will have the opportunity to say yes or no or change it in a way that would be more receptive to them. It's in negotiation, we are clear and we are concise and we're, we're providing so that we can provide consent. Um, we are honest and we provide agency, meaning that we empower each person to create, to make their own decisions for themselves. There's no coercion so that we can allow for, con- for true consent to happen. And there is constant negotiation. So whether it's even within, b- before a scene, of course, Understanding limits, understanding safe words, meaning, um, you know, like say we want to use um, pineapple <laughs> as a word, which is, which is a common safe word, to be what delineates the stop. Mm-hmm. Or maybe we use yet red in yellow to delineate, you know, uh, red means stop and yellow means slow down or, or, you know, less pressure kind of thing. But even in that, we can be more direct. Um, we want more, we want harder, we want softer, we want the type of whatever we're doing to be moved to a different location. So it's consistently checking in with ourselves and consistently checking in with the other person. Then, so everybody knows where each other's at at the whole time. And it continues to be something that we co-create together in a way that feels safe. Then aftercare is the, the actions that we take after a scene has ended. So whatever it is, whether it's role-playing or whether it's yeah, flogging or, or maybe it's um, uh, pet play, whatever it is, mm-hmm. afterward, can we, one of the participants will do some sort of action to make the other person feel good psychologically, physically, emotionally, especially if you think about taking on these specific roles that might be taboo or that might be politically incorrect or something that might 
otherwise stimulate emotional distress in the body, doing some sort of action to counter that and help the person to come down from whatever altered state of consciousness or state that they're in and feel held and loved and cared for. So I remember, you know, bringing up a specific scene for myself, my dom at the time, mm-hmm. we would engage in, in flogging and, and whips and that kind of thing. And then afterward he would, and it was very like rough and very much like him telling me what to do and saying things that, you know, in the regular world, in the outside world would be harsh. Mm-hmm. It would be harsh and it would be very, it could be emotionally abusive, mm-hmm. but because we had created the safe container of this is, this is our play. This is something that we are taking on these roles. Then afterward, he would hold me in his arms and caress my hair and tell me that I was such a good girl. And, you know, all of these, these words and these actions would help sort of close the container Mm -hmm. and leave me in a state of feeling held and supported rather than being left feeling not connected with and Mm -hmm. by myself. Right, right. And I think that's what a beautiful kind of example that you talked about your personal experience, because I think it's the aftercare is so important. And I think that's why that people need to do research when they want to kind of incorporate more more of kind of like BDSM in the relationship to, to make sure that they have this, first of all, the consent piece mm-hmm. and also the aftercare piece so they can they can help them, as you said, like the this kind of interaction to close this scene. And I, this is something as a tangent, which I, with the consent BDSM community, at least the clients that I've seen, they do a great job with it. They're very clear. They, they, they talk about it usually at least again the people I know kind of what is okay and what's not okay and mm-hmm. if you're consenting to it right now what would be the safe word if in case you, you don't like it and this, about what's going on in the moment mm-hmm. but I think that makes a huge difference because on the other side at times I hear from friends or even colleagues or clients that the partner the sexual partner try to do this kind of more aggressive things spontaneously during the sex with the partner without negotiating it. Mm. And I had people, clients and even colleagues that I felt traumatized with the partner choking them in mm. the middle of the sex because it wasn't discussed. So I think mm. it can definitely change the dynamic. If you are uh, consenting to this, you might be more open to exploring different things and your sex life might be so much more exciting if you have that element of talking and communicating around these things versus a spontaneously trying to kind of explore these things during sex. Yeah. And can't we all learn of, learn from that experience? Like, can't we all learn how to communicate and have consent before before we engage in sex because or and continuously throughout it because we this I think that concept is across the board it's not even just BDSM it's just BDSM gets way better at communicating talking about it Mm -hmm. because the culture is so aware of it and they want to make things safe and not Um, harming and traumatizing, but we can all use with talking about these specific things because who knows who has trauma in their history where one sex position may completely dysregulate them. And that has nothing to do with BDSM, but simply all about that particular person's sexual script. 
Absolutely. And I think as if we are doing things that uh, we haven't kind of consented or haven't talked to the partner before, that can trigger the trauma, as you mentioned. I, I, and I hear it even from the married couples that they've been together for years and they're trying this new position that 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 kind of brings up so many kind of memory for the partner. So yeah. I, I think that's fantastic for everyone to have a safe board and also talk about kind of like what they like, what they want to kind of explore. And that, that can make sex so much more exciting, right? Because you're yeah. constantly thinking about what am I willing to do? Like you're doing this checking with yourself and with your partner. So it's not necessarily you're, you're always having this routine sex. Right. And how much more exciting that is and how much more we can all relax into that when we know where everybody is. We don't have to guess. <laughs> right. Right. So I, I bet that like you sounded so exciting <laughs> doing the play and BDSM. Uh, and I bet some of our listeners, they want to know like, okay, if we want to explore BDSM and we haven't done that, what would be the first kind of a starting point for them? I would say read books, read books or watch YouTube videos about people who are talking about their experiences of media, being in BDSM. Um, a couple of my favorite authors and books, there's um, the new bottoming book and the new topping book by Janet Hardy and Dossie Easton. Um, there's also the ultimate guide to kink, BDSM role play and the erotic edge by Tristan Taramino. And then any of the work by Galen Foose. And I actually interviewed him on my own podcast as well. So all three of them are phenomenal in the way that they write things in a way that's accessible for people and helps them expand their potential for sex in general, whether it's BDSM or not. But um, I think those are the first places to go so that we can rewrite the inner script or understanding that we have around BDSM in, in an accurate way instead of the old scripts that say it's there's something mentally wrong with you. Thank you for recommending those books. I'll leave, it, I'll leave the link to those books in the show notes. I haven't read them, honestly, so I'm very excited myself <laughs> to read those. And Dr. Kat, I know you have your own podcast. You're a therapist. So tell us where can people find the content, the podcast, the website, and all of those good stuff? Sure. So my podcast is Eat, Play, Sex, and you can find that on Spotify or iTunes. It's everything related to sex, relationships, and nutrition, so especially hormone health and how we can take care of ourselves from the inside out. Everything else is can be found on sexloveyoga.com. Um, I'm also in social media, Instagram at sexloveyoga. Every day writing something related to one of those three topics. <laughs> it's really fun. I also have online programs around sexuality and um, navigating heartbreak. So and and videos on um, acro yoga for intimacy. Oh. So utilizing the concept of yoga to help us regulate our nervous system so that we can better connect with each other and find deeper layers of, of um, release and sensation and pleasure in our bodies. Awesome. Awesome. I'll, I'll leave the link to the show notes to all of those great resources that you mentioned. Thank you so much for coming into the show. This was definitely a very helpful and informative conversation. Mm, thank you so much. <laughs> Have a great day. You too. 
hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Kat. I think it was very cool that she she conducted this wonderful study around vanilla and kinky sex, and she shared her founding with us. At the end, I wanted to thank all of you guys who wrote us an honest review on iTunes. I recently got a review from Weekler. She wrote, I'm always on the hunt to find good, accurate content about sexual wellness. And this podcast is just an amazing. I learned quite a bit and recommend it to anyone in the industry wanting to get more in depth about their sexuality or for those who help others with their sexuality. I love you, V. Claire. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts and experiences with other people. And thank you so much for spreading the word about this show. If you like this show, please consider recommending it to a friend and write us an honest review on iTunes. I'll talk to you guys later. Bye. Thanks for listening to Sexology Podcast. For more great content, visit www.sexologypodcast.com. Please be advised that information presented on this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health provider.